Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Eric Connor, and today we got a really special guest, the fabulous Craig Caton Largent. Now, Craig started his career doing practical effects, uh, including puppetry. And if you've seen any movies, you've seen at least one of his films. He's worked on everything from Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, Ghostbusters, Predator. He's done it all. He also switched over, though. He's one of the guys who was able to go from animatronics and puppetry into more CG work and has recently worked on How to Train Your Dragon 2, amongst many other animated films. So after working on dozens and dozens of films, he came to New York Film Academy about four years ago as an instructor in our animation department. And about two years ago, he became department chair. And ever since, the department's only grown, gotten stronger and better, and we are a better school for having him here. So, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Craig Caton Largent. Thanks for having me on your show. It's really cool. Ah, no problem. <laughs> I'm glad you uh, ventured down to the Burbank Studios to be with me today. <laughs> so his career spans, I mean, it's decades now, right? You started in... Yeah, 39 years ago, yeah. So you're hitting 40 years. Yeah, coming up on 40. Uh, this next April will be 40 years, yeah. So if we cut to 40 years ago, the slightly younger version of yourself... Would he imagine you did all this? Oh, no way. No, not even. I would, it would be like in my dreams to, to like have achieved what, what I got, got mm-hmm. to. Yeah. I was just hoping to work on a, you know, a couple of movies and, and become like a, a regular makeup artist for a TV series or movies or something like that. And never in my wildest dreams and thought I would end up working on some of the, you know, the most iconic creatures uh, in the 80s and 90s. So your first professional gig was what then? What, what project? The uh... very first, well, the the first one that people would recognize would be Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. In 3D? In 3D, yeah. It was a Charlie Band movie. What and, work did you do on that? Um, there is, uh, the main work that I did on it were there's these, these sandworms that come out of the ground and have like this fight and he blows them up with his laser uh, so I, that was one of the, the first puppets that I, I ever built. And also the first puppeteering gig that I got to do too was mm-hmm. these, these, uh, we built a big, like, it looked like a boxing ring. Uh, and then we filled it with vermiculite and then we had holes in the bottom of it, uh, to stick our hands through and, and mm-hmm. put the puppets up through the vermiculite. So you're, you're working the puppets, but you're also basically building the puppets, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I found out really early if you were the guy that built the puppets, you were usually the guy that puppeteered them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it wasn't the people who sculpted them, and it wasn't the people who were making the molds. It was the guys who were doing the actual mechanics of the puppets because they kind of figured that if you were doing the mechanics uh, that you already knew how to you know, to move the puppet and how to puppeteer it since you were doing that that part as well. So it's almost like you would custom fit it to you. Absolutely. For me, though, it was uh, I always had this philosophy of what I wanted to call puppeteer-friendly puppets. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to I wanted to build puppets that would actually do the job for you. So you would, all you would have to do is put your hand or control the puppet, and it would literally almost perform for you. So that part of its performance was actually in its design, uh, and so that was important to me because uh, early on I would make these puppets that were so hard to control and so hard to manage that that by the time I was done puppeteering them on set, I would my hands would be a wreck, and, and I would just go that was a horrible performance because. I wasn't able to control the puppet. Kind of like trial and error, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was there was a lot of that in the early days where you realized you'd gotten to set and you had made a horrible mistake. Do you have anyone and, in particular you remember? Well, there was, a, there was a puppet that I had. I built in four days. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a very, very quick show. The name of this movie was Sorority Babes and the Slime, Slime Ball Bolorama. Oh, I yeah. know. Oh, which yeah. We, 
we shot in a uh, bowling alley down near San Diego uh, <laughs> at, at nighttime. And, and so I had two weeks uh, and $5,000 to make a full-on, fully articulated, speaking main character for a movie. And, and so I, I, I did that. Uh, but it was like, you know, 24-7, like sculpting for four days in a row and right. mold making and running this foam. And then I actually, I built the puppet, but I really didn't have time to build the controls for it. So when I showed up, it was one of those those situations where you realize that, hmm, <laughs> maybe I should have rethought this. What was it supposed to look like? So I, I kind of kind of had a body like... Imagine a body very similar to Gremlins, but then the mouth I just replaced with like the muzzle from Audrey 2 from the Little Shop of Horrors. And the reason I did that because because Audrey 2 is an amazingly articulated uh, plant. I mean, the, the lip syncs and the stuff that they did were amazing. Look, you're a plant, an inanimate object. Does this look inanimate to you, punk? If I can talk and I can move, who's to say I can't do anything I want? And also the secret behind that, how they did that, was most of the dialogue scenes with Audrey 2 were shot at 18 frames a second. Okay. And slow, and so that way uh, it gets speeded up and looks like she's nailing all of the syllables and all right, that stuff. Right, right. Yeah, just hitting all of them. And actually, uh, the Slimer Ghost on Ghostbusters, we did the same thing. Mm-hmm. We, a lot of the footage on the Slimer Ghost was shot at 18 frames a second. So mm-hmm. that way when you see it in the film, he's just got that little more frenetic, frantic uh, feel to him because he's just slightly speeded up. It was actually a really popular technique back in those days because uh-huh. uh, we would we would change film speeds for uh, for shooting miniatures and stuff in order to right. get the right scale uh, for for miniatures. And so it wasn't uh, for for the camera people who were doing it. It wasn't that big of a leap for them because they right. were already used to like, oh, if we wanted to go this fast, we'll shoot at eighteen. Sure. And the monster makers are like. Sure, let's do that. Right. So, yeah. Well, even like fight scenes, chase scenes. Oh, I mean, yeah. So much of that was manipulated by camera speed. Yeah. You know, so that it just makes everything look more dangerous than it is. What were some other ones that you could think of where, you know, you put all this time, energy, effort in, and all of a sudden, there, here's there was the this, moment. There was this one effect that we did on this movie called Fright Night. It was uh, it was a, a hand transformation. So it was a uh, it was where a uh, a human hand transforms into a werewolf paw and i decided to do it reverse uh and film it in reverse and so what we did is i i built this werewolf paw with all these like muscles and tendons and then covered all that with a a gelatin covering of a a human hand and then we melted it and it took like three months to to engineer this werewolf paw and Mm -hmm. it's literally the first time we shot it, it just didn't work at all it just mm-hmm. failed so three months later here i am doing another one so it's like the six month gag right so six months later we we film it and it never worked as good as i wanted it to but the the second take is the one you see in the movie and it happens so fast it's just kind of like blink hand <laughs> <laughs> oh okay and then you see the film so, and you're like i worked on that for how many for hours hours and yeah you know, weeks and months right, right, yeah right, right. yeah I mean, and, so for yourself, then, do you, especially like when you work on something that's cut out of the film, does it bruise your ego or is it just like, well, I'm okay, oh, I did my job it, and it so used it. to, yeah, back in the early days, like uh-huh. if there was like, if there was like what we thought was a really great shot and it got cut out of the movie, we're kind of like, oh, well, that's their loss. They missed mm-hmm. it. But, but nowadays, like, like I, I just finished working on an animated feature where we did 31 shots. Mm-hmm. None of them are being used. Oh. And then they decided to go a different route. 
and but we got paid and, right. and yeah so you, you just can't the after so many years you just don't worry about the the babies getting thrown out with the the, the bath water, the bath water yeah. right well, it's like if you treat these things too precious yeah then you're going to be constantly frustrated right exactly you need to be really judicious and, yeah and and almost inhuman at some point right so <laughs> <laughs> so um I mean, I think it's it's hysterical. It's like kind of hearing about. I mean, I guess we'll call it the human factor. I, I remember, oh, 2010. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was that one. Th- that's yeah, a great we story. We can talk to about share. that. Yeah. So, so 2010, the sequel to 2001. If you remember in 2001, the Star Baby. I'll just. Yeah. So there was a. Uh, in the end, there's a Star Child, and and we won't go into the plot line about it. But again, in 2010, this Star Child makes an appearance. Um, and uh, one of the common materials that we were building puppets at the time and still is, is we were using foam latex. But when you have, uh, you make these foam latex pieces from molds and whenever those mold pieces come together, you have a seam. And it was almost impossible to get rid of this on the foam latex. So we decided to skip using foam latex and move to using uh, gelatin. And it was really easy to get rid of the seam because all you needed was like a hot washcloth and it was dissolved. And we took him to set and we filmed him and uh, we decided to break for lunch, and the still photographer asked if uh, if he could take a couple pictures, and we said sure. And 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 he asked if we could leave the light on. It was just these great big hot movie lights, and so he did. And he, he took his pictures, and then he left for lunch, and and he forgot to turn off the light. Uh, what happened was these lights had caused the left side of the star child's face to melt. So imagine a baby with a stroke, you know, with the whole left side of the face sagging down. And you know something's drastically wrong. Well, so the photographer, he was also the first one back. And he sees this, and he panics, and he, he spins around, and he smashes face into a, uh, a pole and knocks himself unconscious. And, and literally like a minute later or whatever, uh, we come walking into the set, and we see this you know dead guy on the ground and this stroked-out star child, and we're going, what happened here? But, yeah, that was... Uh, that was a, a, a big oopsie. Oh, I mean, so. other times you could think of where, like, I mean, it's a little bit different, but, like, in Terminator 2 with the... Uh, oh, the, with the, the, the puppeteering thing? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. In Terminator 2, one of the most iconic moments in the whole film. Yeah. So this we're talking about Donut Head, right? Yeah, yeah. Donut yeah. Head. <laughs> so so uh, in Terminator 2, there's this puppet. We called him Donut Head, and it's the, uh, the T-1000... Um, and Linda Hamilton uh, shoots his face with a shotgun, and then all of a sudden his right eye is nothing but this giant hole all the way through his head. And so I had, I had made this puppet. It was basically a big hand puppet. So my hand was up in his head, controlling his head, and then we had another puppeteer who was controlling uh, both of his shoulders just to bring get the shoulders uh, to come to life. And then on, on top of that, we also had the actor, Robert Patrick. We were using his real left arm uh, to cover up the puppet's face, so uh, we would do this reveal. So we were all smashed together as close as could be, and we do this reveal. But um, the the gag was there was a, a rotating collision beacon light that needs to show up through the hole of this puppet behind him, and and trying to uh, wrangle this puppet into this position while you're fighting against two other puppeteers is almost impossible uh, to get it in the, just the exact micrometer position. We succeeded on take four, and in true James Cameron fashion, he said, that was perfect, let's do it again. (laughs) And we couldn't do it again to save our lives. In fact, it got so bad that James Cameron was wondering if I even knew what I was doing 
at point. So he gets up and he's like four inches away from my face. It's literally, it's like we're on like an old soap opera or something. And he's screaming at me. Do you know what you did wrong? Do you know what you blink, 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 blink did wrong? And I go, yeah, I didn't get the eye and the eye light and the collision beacon. And he went from like raving monster to like totally calm guy and just looked at me in the face and said, oh, okay, yeah, well, don't do it again or I'll kill you. Well, we didn't get it again, and we had to break for lunch. Next thing you know, there's James Cameron walking next to me, and, and he's saying, hey, you know, I really gave it to you back there, but don't worry. This is going to be like one of the signature shots in the movie, and it's going to be on the cover of Cinefax. And absolutely true to, to James, it made the cover of Cinefax, which totally made my, my day James Cameron, hold, he's true to his word. Right. So, <laughs> Except for the part about killing you. Well, there was a, we all had t-shirts made saying that we know we're going to heaven because we worked on a James Cameron movie. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of James Cameron, who went from like these low budget, like Roger Corman, in case the name doesn't ring a bell, Roger Corman's like the ultimate low budget producer. Yeah. He's produced 500 or so At films. At least, yeah. Maybe even more. Um, <laughs> but Roger Corman gave... Cameron, his star, and, and Joe Dante. Yeah. I think Coppola might have worked with him might at one have point. With him, yeah. Jonathan Demme, I believe, yeah, went through Corman. Yeah. Nicholson. He taught people how yeah. to make movies on a shoestring budget, and he can make a, a viable, you know, 90-minute movie for $90,000 and would make money off of it. And it would be like sci-fi or horror. Yeah, so, like, yeah. genre that actually might cost a buck or two to get across the visuals. And he also showed people how, like, like he holds the record of number of setups, like, in a single day. I think he has, like, 88 camera setups yeah. in a day or something like that. And I remember on Jurassic Park, we got 44 one day. Wow. And we were like, yeah, where we were, we were really jazzed that we'd gotten, like, halfway to Corman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the Jurassic Park is we overplanned everything on that movie. I mean, like, every single shot, like... We did storyboards. We did little stop motion animatics. We did paper cutouts that we ran around with on set and did timing with. We, we did hand puppets, uh, <laughs> and we we put it all together. And then we had this amazing shot by shot blueprint to make the movie. But because uh, it was so planned, people don't know this, but we finished 15 days ahead of schedule and 20 million dollars under its budget. Unbelievable. So. Well, and and I think too what's so interesting about Jurassic Park. I mean, besides everything, <laughs> is like that was the transformation. That was the sort of the moment. Even though we had computer technology, before. yeah, it's where we moved. Yeah, yeah it's where I, they proved the audience once right. in a while we could seamlessly blend between the the two. Yeah. Right. And I know for yourself, this was also a transformative moment for your career too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because that's where I I made the switch from doing the practical stuff over to the digital world. Did you still find yourself kind of doing animatronics and puppetry? Or really, did you kind of go all in on animation, or was it somewhere in between? It was a it was an interesting blend for a while because um, I was still getting calls all the time to do puppets and animatronics, uh -huh. and so as much as I possibly could, I would still take those jobs on because I still enjoyed doing that and still do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it got eventually got less and less uh, because I was you know being known for digital stuff and, and getting more involved with with that. I mean, it seems like after Jurassic Park, like the budgets went up. Like, what did you take from the low budget world over to the high budget world? You know, like what tricks or lessons or? Oh yeah, well, the, you know, like you know, necessity being the mother of invention. Sure. So there were there were times like like um, I was I was working on a fairly. Uh, you're gonna laugh because it was Star Trek Four, and I'm gonna say it was a low budget movie. 
because in the terms of uh, uh, yeah, the saving the whales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and, one and, set in modern day um, San Francisco. And in, in terms of, of of the what we did for creatures and stuff, it was a, an, actually an incredibly low budget movie. Their thoughts were that it's Star Trek. We have a guaranteed audience, whether we have monsters or right. not. They're going to come see this movie. But uh, there was there was a couple of these aliens, and I had to make a couple of them, and the, I wanted them to have the same. Uh, paint jobs and I didn't mm-hmm. want to have to sit there and painstakingly try to duplicate each paint job so I made these these vacuform shells that would fit over the heads and then I cut holes in them mm-hmm. and used those as like friskets or templates for my airbrush so all I had to do is like slap them up against the rubber mask and spray them with my spray paint and then pull them out in instant pattern mm-hmm. and I didn't have to sit there for like four or five hours you know like duplicating each right. one of them then um, one of the guys I was working with, named Shannon Shea, mm-hmm. uh, he went from there. He went over to Stan Winston's to work on this movie called Alien Nation. Mm-hmm. And they were forced with like, you know, um, you know, Mandy Patinkin is going to go through like five of these appliances every week. And right. we need to make those patterns consistent. So Shannon goes, I have an idea from Craig. We did this. And so they incorporated that idea into this much bigger movie. Right, and, they right, were right. Able, and that was one of the reasons they were able to make the movie work. So John Carpenter, you worked with him on Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, and they live, right? And they live, yeah. Actually, you want to know what we did on They Live is we had been working on this movie, uh, The Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Oh, yes. And, one, and in the early days of The Living Dead Part 2, we sculpted a, a zombie monster appliance a day. So after that, we had like over 100 different zombie masks and okay. stuff that we could choose from. And when They Live came out, they just went through the Living Dead collection and said, <laughs> we like that one and we like that one. And, for for and, the alien faces? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and then they were modified a little bit. And that was, they were reuses. It wasn't really a hard show to do. Right. And it's one of those shows where you think back like, what did I do on that show? <laughs> I know I was on it. <laughs> well, it seems like every movie I allude to from this time frame <laughs> you've worked on. You're one of those guys, your IMDb page only tells like part of the story, really. Oh, yeah. There's there's like, I, I, there's not even half of the movies I worked on are on IMDb. You know, there were like little movies where I, I just like, for like, for instance, uh, there was a movie called Dark Man. Of course, directed by yeah. Sam Raimi, starring yeah. Liam Neeson. And it's just a tiny little deal, but... They needed a close-up of a helicopter instrument panel when the <laughs> helicopter goes haywire. Right. And they couldn't do it with a real helicopter. You can't just sit there, now make the instruments go crazy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Cut. <laughs> Check gate. Moving on. You know, um, so I made a miniature helicopter instrument panel for a Bell 206. And it's only in like three or four seconds. Like, oh, look, the gauges are going crazy. Right. Okay, cut. You know, and, and so, you know, you spend like three or four days making something like this mm-hmm. and it's for three or four frames and then you forget about it and you move on. There was a while in, in the 80s where um, I was I was pretty good friends with a lot of the uh, the makeup artists who were doing television shows, but mm-hmm. they were so busy doing the actors and stuff like that that they didn't have time to do the occasional cuts and bruises and the scrapes and the type of stuff that would occur from time to time. Uh, and one of these shows was uh, uh, Airwolf. Mm-hmm. And in one episode, they just had this guy, and they needed to put uh, scrapes and cuts and bruises on his face. Mm-hmm. And then they were going to put him on the nose of the helicopter and shoot him. And then things moved on. 
And then, like, maybe two years ago, you know, Airwolf was, like, what, 35 years ago or something? In the the early 80s, 80s, yeah. So um, there it is on television, on, like, (laughs) TV land, and I'm watching this episode. And I see this guy, he's on the nose of a helicopter, and I see the close-up, and I'm looking at his face, going, hey, you know, that's actually a pretty decent makeup on there. And I go, oh, damn it, I did that. (laughs) And you suddenly realize, oh, that was one of mine. And you, like, for some reason... I didn't see Interview with a Vampire. I worked with worked on Interview with a Vampire. I didn't see the movie for six years after it came out. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I guess I should watch this movie. And I went, <laughs> oh, well, I get the stuff I did on it. actually worked okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, the makeup effects in that are pretty great, yeah. actually. And, yeah. I mean, because also that movie has to, like, you can't get away with, like. Yeah, and we, we you, you know. That was in the early days where we were abusing CG in movies. You know? Yeah, they yeah, It's yeah. like, you know, why do something that would cost us $15 practically when we can spend a 150000 to do it in CG land? Yeah. And we did a lot of that back uh-huh. in those days before we, like, started coming to our senses. I mean, I, I always have this, like, fondness and respect for the low-budget filmmakers because, like, they find solutions, you know? Oh, yeah. You had to be really clever back in right. those days. One of the uh, the cool, clever things that we did for um, Interview with the Vampire is uh-huh. uh, there's this big um, southern mansion. It's like this famous southern mansion with, like, these giant pillars in the front that has to burn down. Right, right. Well, obviously, we couldn't burn, it, we couldn't burn down the real one, right? But what we did is all we did is we built we built a replica of this building and we painted it all black. It was just the shapes, no details. Right. And then we lined it up with a roto mask box. Uh, we lined it up with the background plate that we shot of this building. So yeah, it, yeah. it superimposed the, the building. And then mm-hmm. we lit that on fire. So even like if it's fire from behind the pillars, it's it's, ask, it's working as its own mask. Oh, wow. So in, and it's, you know, and you, all you got to do is marry the two pieces of film together and you have an instant yeah, fire yeah. scene and it looks great and it did look great and we did everything you know we were all by the book we had fire marshals there because when you do big burns like this yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah. have to have you know the fire engines and fire marshals there and we lit it on fire and then we could not put it out and it was maybe 15 feet away from the building which was completely covered in black dubatine so all of a sudden it went from being this cool effect to a really quick emergency so yeah, the, the more fire engines showed up and they put it out, and, and they were going to fine us like ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars for this little episode. But we pointed out that the whole thing had been approved by right, their right, right. fire marshal uh, and given the stamp approval. And like, if it's approved, then it should have been good. So we got out of that. So um, if you had, let's say, one creation you have in terms of like you have the most pride for. Oh yeah, you know, and then also yeah. on the flip side. The least What's one, well, at least like one. You're like, oh, it, why did they keep that? Probably Might be the stuff. <laughs> the stuff coming soon for you from New World Pictures. Is that one of the ones that you sort of shake your head at still? And if yeah. you don't know the stuff, I mean, the stuff is a horror movie. That it's 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 like the it's the, like the blog. It's like these people discover this stuff in a cave and they think it would be a good yogurt substitute. <laughs> I know. Just deal. Go with us here. Yeah. What they don't know is that the it's actually this giant uh, primordial parasite, <laughs> and once you eat it, it takes over your body, and you become like a collective hive mind. There are some of the gags we did on that. Yeah, because like we were trying to do like a um, exploding head, like they did on scanners, right? Yeah. And, and we knew on scanners that that when they built the head that. 
like the gelatin that they made the head from was like less than a quarter of an inch thick because it turns out gelatin's really strong. Right. <laughs> and, and, um, so, but we knew this, but the, the director said he wanted like this giant meaty chunks of gelatin splattering about yeah. it. And, and, and so he convinced us wrongly. He convinced us to make the gelatin about an inch and a half thick. Um, and we had hired uh, uh, one of the most uh, prominent uh, explosive pyro guys in the business. His name mm-hmm. was Joe Viscosal. He blew up the Death Star for Star Wars. <laughs> that was his big fame. And and he's loading the explosives into this fake head. And I'm going, yeah, how much is that? I'll never forget. He says, I'm using 16 times the amount of explosives I used on the Death Star. To blow up this one to head. To blow up this head, Yeah. And we're going, cool, it's going to blow up good. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> All it did is it got it got really big like a balloon head for a few frames, and then it collapsed on itself. So we, we couldn't use that take oh. because it needed to explode. So we took that head, and we scored it, and then we took these giant two-by-four scissors mechanism, okay. and we stuck like the short end of the scissors into the head to like make it go apart. Yeah, yeah. We broke the two by fours. We couldn't even get the gelatin head to come apart. And so <laughs> we we abandoned those effects for some other ones later. The, indes- the indestructible yeah. head. Yeah. So on the on the flip side of, let's say, the stuff, um, is All there right. one particular puppet effect shot that you just look at it with with like pride? Like, I can't oh. believe we pulled that off. There's there's one single shot that, that I'm most proud of of all the shots that I've did. It's in the kitchen scene of Jurassic Park, and the raptors are chasing um, the kids into the freezer. Mm-hmm. And then the raptor goes into the freezer, and there's this really great shot of the raptor smashing against this back wall, this uh, this cabinet filled with food and stuff like that. And you see this raptor smashing into this wall. He really looks like he's just demolishing it. That's because I actually did. They wanted this great shot, and I just thought, I found a way where I could, just as the raptor's head started to make contact with the cabinet, uh, I slammed my shoulder into the cabinet as hard as I could. I mean, it's it's like apocalyptic. It's like right. you really feel like a 600-pound raptor just slammed into yeah, this wall. Yeah, like, the part where he slides yeah. and like, he it's, loses it's, his It's just this quick yeah. shot. You can't see his, like the raptor go. He hits it, and he turns the head, and they cut. And it's a really quick shot, but... When we did the shot, everyone went, what? <laughs> and, and Spielberg's like, we got that in one. Yeah. And it just worked really, really well. And, yeah. And there's a lot of really great iconic shots in that movie, like the, yeah. the window porthole that I'm really proud of where I copied the movie Alien and stuff. Then that's one of my favorite shots. But this particular shot, every time I see it, it just works. Because it did. I smashed right, 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 into right. that thing so good. And... So that's like my favorite shot of all time, I think. Right. Now, when I was doing the raptors on Jurassic Park, I used Kermit the Frog's voice for the raptors <laughs> the whole time. So it was like, like, so you can imagine the raptor sitting there going into the kitchen. All right, everybody, it's the raptor, and I'm getting ready to come into the kitchen. Grr. All right, I'm now in the kitchen. I just kind of like gravitated towards the Kermit the Frog voice. I, it wasn't like a conscious Well, in thing. some ways, you're doing the hand, yeah. right? So you're like, hey, everybody. But... And it just kind of goes when you move your hand. You just have to do Kermit with it. You know, everybody, <laughs> welcome to the really big show. So imagine if I used Yoda's voice. <laughs> my raptor, I help you not. So, but, but, okay, my favorite, I think my favorite movie of all time and the work that I'm really the most 
proud of might be Tremors. Ah, because Tremors. Tremors was probably the last pre-CG movie. Yeah, like pure puppetry. Yeah. Like we did every puppet trick in the book. Yeah. We did reverse shots. We did marionettes. We did yeah. cable controlled puppets. We just everything you can imagine in this. We did hand puppets. Right. Uh, everything in the, under the sun was the, the there. Part when, I, I don't remember if it was Kevin Bacon or Fred Ward who punched one of the puppets. Was that you by any chance? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, was you. me. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a one shot that I'm really proud of where we, we took one of these these really expensive tentacle mechanisms we yeah. made and we buried it in the ground. And then um, I forget the name of the person who's driving the bulldozer, right? Mm-hmm. And he's coming down the road and this thing's sticking out of the ground and the teeth of the bulldozer look like it just mouths this thing over, right? Right, right, right. Well, it never even touched it. Sure. So I'm sitting there with the controls right at the last second. Right. And... And it was, it's a great shot. It works sure. really well. Yeah, that's one of like, I don't know, you have a, we went over a whole bunch of films, but that's one that's really, yeah. uh, especially if you like the genre, it's it does it so well. Yeah, and, and It's and so when, fun. And when you start looking at the background story of the writers and everybody involved in the movie, it just becomes that, that even more enchanting and, and great for you because if you've seen Tremors, I'm going to ruin the ending for you. Sorry, guys. Um in the end of the movie, Kevin Bacon runs towards this cliff and he stops at the last minute and the worm keeps going over the cliff. Can you fly, you sucker? So, where have we seen this gag before? We've seen it in a dozen Roadrunner Coyote movies. <laughs> And the reason we see it there is the two writers of Tremors, Brent Maddox and Steve Wilson, they used to be writers for Chuck Jones on the Roadrunner cartoons. Oh, my God. And that's why you'll see all the same gags. Like, yeah. they do the fishing with dynamite yeah, yeah, gag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wiley Coyote does that with a fishing oh pole with the Roadrunner, God. right? And he gets stuck in yeah. the, the cactus and gets flown back. That's so that was, that was, you know, that was all, it was all... I had no um, idea. Well, I have one so. question for you, actually, about... Um, because it's like we we're talking so much about, you know, just sort of animatronics and puppets. How did it prepare you then for your eventual shift in animation? The thing that actually, okay, I need to even go back before puppets to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that prepared me to do puppets was um, I actually went to school and I became an x-ray technologist. And so I had this great knowledge uh, of how human anatomy worked. I knew exactly how bones worked against each other because, mm-hmm. you know, you're taking x-rays of them all the, all the day long. And so... I took that that working physiology knowledge with me into puppet making, and and all of a sudden when I'm I start making like shoulder joints, and you're having a really hard time getting shoulders to act naturally like human shoulders, you start thinking, hey, what if I start making these little polyfoam strips like the muscle strips of a shoulder and seeing if it works that way? And sure enough, it does. Right. Um, so that carries over to that. But then when we go over to into uh, the CG world. We're trying to figure out how, how do we make these puppets move around. Right. And for the longest period of time, um, so in the in CG world, the puppets, they have little skeleton joints. And you reach and you would grab like an arm bone. And then you'd rotate it to move the animate the arm of this CG character. Um, and it became really hard to do because you're trying to reach in between the skin, basically, of the character and pick this bone. Sometimes you would get the skin and it'd be really frustrating. So we had this meeting one day. Uh, and my supervisor said, hey, Craig, you're from the puppet world. You know, how do you control puppets like this? Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, well, we use cables or we could do like Kermit the Frog where we would use like a, a rod puppet right, to right, control right. the wrists. And 
When I said that, this Irish guy named Greg McGuire just belts out this, that's brilliant. And he runs off, right? And about 15 minutes later, Greg comes back with this CG arm and hand mechanism that has these three little cones under the wrist. And each one of these cones is controlling a different aspect of the arm. One, one cone is controlling the translation, and one cone is controlling the rotation. The other cone is controlling the scale. Then mm-hmm. right then and there, this other really brilliant mind, a guy named Mark Swain, says, wouldn't it be better if all those controls were on one? And Greg goes, that's brilliant. And he runs <laughs> off. They both run off. And they come back 15 minutes later. right? And then they have all the controls on one cone. Mm-hmm. And that's how controls got made for the CG industry. If you look on any CG character now, you're going to see these little spline controls around the wrists and the heads and stuff. And we invented it that. that. It moment. all came from that meeting in wow. that one day of like, how, you know, going back to what we were saying yeah. earlier, you know, necessity being the mother invention, yeah. how do we do this? So now you've been working with New York Film Academy like four years. Uh, yeah, about four years now. And were you, was the first teaching you did like here or did you teach before? Like, has uh, this been, I like, had done a little bit of teaching uh, other places, but not, not formal teaching like I did here. Yeah. And, and my very first class was uh, teaching digital environments. Mm-hmm. I did my whole lesson plan. Right. And I looked at the clock and only 20 minutes had gone by. <laughs> <laughs> and I still had like two hours left for the class of like, I covered all my material. And I'm just looking at, my students are looking at me like I'm a crazy man. Dense material that you're covering yeah. too, I'm And sure. I was going like a mile a minute. You know, two hours and 45 minutes of materials in under 20 minutes. So... And I just look up and they're like deers in the headlights, like, what? What, just, what did we just witness? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was where I had to slow things <laughs> down a bit. So now that you've been the department chair for almost two years and you've taught yeah. here for a few years, like, what, what's the shape of the program now at the school in terms of what students are taught, what, what the expectations are when they finish the right. program? Well, we retooled pretty much the whole, whole program. There were, there were some things that I felt were, were old-fashioned and mm-hmm. we didn't really need to do. Just kind of getting things a little more modernized and mm-hmm. stuff. But the, the, the great thing was that um, the team that I got, the, the, my instructors and stuff, I, you couldn't get better instructors. They were absolutely fantastic. Right, right. So, so I walked into like this, this wonderful team that, that uh, you know, I was learning from them, uh, which was great. But we we've enjoyed a, a tremendous amount of growth in our first year. Yeah, uh, we've we've grown uh, over two hundred and forty-two percent. I also think that uh, as we've gone along these last four years, also that the instructors have become a lot better as well. We've all mm-hmm. matured and, and figured out all, you know better ways to teach this stuff. Sure, and that is easily reflected when you look at the quality of our students' work now mm-hmm. compared to the stuff that you were seeing like four years ago. It's it's like night and day what what mm-hmm. they're doing. So a student comes here, what are some of the, I don't know, the specific skills that they're going to pick up? Um, and also what might be something they'll learn that might be surprising to them that they'll learn? Yeah, actually, it, um, one of the things that constantly surprises my new students is that we we don't actually start out in digital. We actually start out in traditional. So we mm-hmm. start out with a traditional drawing class with a really great traditional artist. And we also have start out with a traditional sculpting class where you sculpt stuff in clay and what this does is it helps give the uh 
the student, it grounds them in the physical world in terms of like, for, in, for instance, like sculpting right. that allows them, they actually get a real 3D spatial sense in the world before doing it digitally. And, and then in, uh, as far as drying, it, it helps hone their drawing skills and mm-hmm. their color uh, stuff like that. It gives them a real world um, base. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's really the best way to go because a lot of this stuff is going to start out with a pencil sketch anyway sure. before it goes into the you know, CG world. That, and, and one of the things that I was actually thinking of getting rid of, but it turned out was one of the most popular subjects ever. We, we teach a class in stop motion, mm-hmm. in like traditional stop motion animation. And I thought that it was kind of a dead field. I was completely wrong. Very much alive and popular. Um, And so I decided to keep that class. And I'm actually Mm -hmm. trying to build on it and make it an even more robust and more professional type class Mm -hmm. that offers even more. Uh, So the stop motion stayed. And that was because every open house, the prospective students would come over and they'd say, and it would say, yeah, we stop motion. They go, you teach stop motion? Yeah, and yeah. all of a sudden their eyes light up and they're like, yeah, we're not getting rid of that class. So we maybe we'll add another one. Do they then get into coding? Like what's the next steps? Yeah, actually that's another interesting thing. Before I became chair, um, a lot of the students were complaining about how hard the coding class was. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that was right about the time that I took over that class and was teaching it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'd actually got rid of it. And so uh, the first thing I did when I became chair was I, I actually reinstituted that program because you'll not see a single job uh, out there for CG people where it says, you know, Python coding skills a plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then also, too, the craft shifts, like technology shifts. Yeah. So, um, I mean, with that in mind, like in terms of teaching, then how do you teach for a medium that more than any of the other crafts arts that we teach here at the school feels like it's probably the one that shifts the fastest it's constantly evolving and and there every day where where there are new tools out there and stuff like that and so mm-hmm. um basically i go home and I, I just start looking at i look at tutorials online and and constantly seeing what's the newest greatest thing out there and, sure. and if we should try to leverage off of that because i know practically everybody in the business uh, a lot of it's it's calling them up and saying, "Hey, what are you? How's your pipeline different than it was a couple of years ago? And mm-hmm. what are you doing differently now?" And and they're more than happy to talk about it because yeah. um, they actually want us to train people that can do their jobs, right, 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 uh, right. and you know, and not just be. They don't have to want to reteach them yeah, when they and, get and up to the job. There's there's a um, there's a, a, a huge amount of reteaching that has to happen anyway because of the, of the proprietary software that they use in these big big places but that being said if our if our students come in with the knowledge base that they have it makes it much easier sure so see it's like you keep your ear to the train track as as you have to yeah you really have to yeah because even the stuff that was uh cutting edge four years ago when we started yeah that's old now like uh, a couple years ago i can't remember uh hollow man came out right yeah so there was a movie hollow man and and then around the same time there was a a spider-man movie where Thomas Hayden Church becomes a Sandman. They spent millions and millions of dollars on these sand simulations right, right. back in those days. And it looked gorgeous. And it's really gorgeous, yeah. right? My students do that as a tutorial. That's how far things have gone. Right. So from from like five or six years ago or eight years ago, whenever that was like the cutting edge thing, yeah. it's now a tutorial for students. We teach like a really rounded uh, set of stuff for both for animation and for visual effects. So mm-hmm. depending on, on whatever 
part of the world that you want to head to for your career. I feel that the students that are leaving our school are actually better trained than I am mm -hmm. because I have, like, for instance, we have an, one of the, like, the greatest Nuke instructors. Nuke is a program that we use for compositing, and, and we have a, uh, an amazing instructor here. Uh, he's one of the world's best, and when they're finished with his class, they know more than I do about this. So we're actually putting out people better trained than we are. <laughs> and that's that's really great. In some ways, you know? that's a hope too, yeah, right? Yeah, it's really like, neat. Yeah, and it, and it's been really rewarding on a on a personal level just to to have like these students of yours that graduate from your program, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're hearing they're they're working on Alien Covenant, and they're working yeah. on Justice League, and the new Harry Potter movie, and the new the new Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which all of those movies I mentioned have students that came from our program working oh, wow. on those. So for like the last maybe the last year and a half, just about every major movie that's come out has had work that yeah. some of our students have been on. And that's tremendously rewarding. That's just like, that's like seeing yourself kind of live on through yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that's really cool. That's what you hope, right? They, they yeah. come out of here and they work. And they, I always say, you know, at our open houses, the goal is not to be a great art student. The goal is to be a great art professional. <laughs> the goal is to get a job yeah. and, you know, I think we covered it all. <laughs> so thank you so much. Beyond being a great teacher, a great animator, great effects guy, you're also just a great dude. And it's been uh, such so much fun getting to know you over the last few years. Yeah, I, I, it's been one of the best experiences of, of my life coming here to teach. Uh, for one reason, it was because uh, I'm, I've been able to take all of the disciplines that I've learned over the years and put them all together. Sure. Uh, and, then, and then the other thing is just working with other tremendously talented people and hanging well people with you know people like yourself thank that you that was again. fun as usual well thank you to craig kate and largen for joining us here and yeah. thanks to all you guys for listening this episode was edited and mixed by christian hayden our creative director is david andrew nelson who also produced this episode with christian hayden and myself executive produced by toba leiter sean sherlock and dan mackler to learn more about our programs check us out at nyfa.edu if you'd like to see some of our Q&As with the entertainment industry's biggest names, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. See you next time. So we good? Oh, he's already recording. Ah, I'm doing oh, cage wait, number one. Wait, no, no, I'm not. Hold on. Oh my god, uh, hot Mike and uh, and, and and me and Cheetos. sometimes. <laughs> Mike and Cheetos and hot teas. <laughs> Things can go bad. Hot Mike and fondue. <laughs> We're gonna actually just We're start just with laughter. The whole We're gonna time start here. with laughter.